Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. Hi, this is Craig Morton, a.k.a. Crash Test Craig. I haven't been called that for a while. On this podcast, we've been silent for some time, but now, with so much to talk about, it's time to seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Hello, everybody. This is Craig from the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. And just wanted to check in with you a little bit. It's been uh, a number of weeks since I put up the last episode. I think it was episode 28. And I've got several uh, interviews just sitting on my computer waiting to uh, be set out as, as podcasts. But I'm also feeling ambivalent. Uh, there are so many things going on in our country and even in the world that some of the topics that we covered in these different interviews seem distant and removed and maybe even um, kind of sidetracking from important conversations we probably should be having in our communities, our churches, our neighborhoods, uh, people we know. You know, I kind of go down a list of all the different things that are um, brewing together in this really crazy time. Uh, It feels unprecedented. Uh, We have economic woes that uh, officially a recession began back in February, uh, previous to the pandemic shutting down all kinds of businesses, uh, including corporations, small business, self-employed individuals. Everybody's felt the the tremors of it. um, So there was the economy already brewing which was just on the heels of impeachment of the president, um, who was acquitted, but nonetheless, the impeachment was a significant story that affected all of our lives, at least here in the United States. But those two things combined actually distracted so many things in our country that we've uh, had kind of a, at least I believe, a tarnished reputation internationally, that we've faded away from different commitments, we've become less involved uh, with human rights and the well-being of others. And that was all just six months ago. But along comes the pandemic, and everything changes. People are working from home. Teachers teach online. Fortunately, I was already teaching online uh, through the college where I work. But everybody made these shifts Things changed. People got into their homes, redeveloped relationships with their with their their neighbors or with their family members in the house with them. So many things changed, and then things slowly begin to open up, and then we all get sick again. And in the meantime, uh, there's a number of legal and political um, maneuverings taking place with people getting fired, resigning, uh, investigations being curtailed. Um, It's just a very confusing time. So rather than saying we don't want to talk about those important issues, or rather than saying um, we want to uh, 
uh, have a different conversation. I'd like to think about these different interviews that I'm going to be trying to put out in the next few weeks as an opportunity to give ourselves a mental and maybe spiritual kind of parentheses or maybe a sidebar so we don't lose sight of all the other things that are going on in our lives and in our communities. So today I'm going to uh, air a interview that I did uh, about, oh, it's even been over a year, I believe. And so I want to make sure that um, that we get some time and then we'll be able to um, think about some other things, kind of expand our, our menu of intake so that it's not all kind of the, the big stories or the massive uh, challenges that we're facing as, as individuals and as communities. The um, author that, that I spoke with uh, last year, actually it wasn't that long ago, so I guess it was probably last March, so yeah, it's a little over a year, is Melanie Springer-Mock. Um, Melanie is a professor of English at George Fox University and the author of many books and articles. Uh, some of the uh, direction that her writing takes is fascinating in that there's a lot of stuff in there about athletics, athletic body image, some of the things that uh, athletes have to deal with and worry about that are more social pressure rather than based on their, their abilities. And along with that, she picks up that idea of the pressures to be someone else that society throws at us in her book, Worthy, Finding Yourself in a World Expecting Someone Else. So in this uh, interview, we talk about the book Worthy, talk about some of the issues around self-worth and understanding oneself, and how people are constantly under the pressure, it seems, to be somebody other than who God has uniquely created them to be and become. Um, there's a lot of uh, social pressures that are affecting uh, the church these days as far as who we are supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. And perhaps even some of that uh, overlaps into some other issues that we don't really tackle in this interview. But it begins to make me wonder if some of the things that are uh, making people want to reject God, Christ, Christianity, the church, have to do with some of these false images uh, that certain churches have, um, I'd say, fallen victim to or been persuaded by, that some of these images are even contrary to what God would have us uh, be and become. Anyway, those are some side thoughts. I'll be interested to hear what you think about uh, after uh, this interview, after you listen to this interview with Melanie Springer-Mock. Today, we're having a conversation with Melanie Springer-Mock. Uh, Melanie is an author and a professor. She teaches at George Fox University. And looking at some of the other titles that she's written, uh, it looks like she's interested in things like parenting and being a mother. And the latest book that uh, uh, at least I've read is the one Worthy, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. And uh, Melanie, uh, welcome to our podcast, and I'll let you take some time to uh, introduce yourself. Is there some things that I, that I left out or things that you think would be important for others to know? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I guess I, I cringe a little bit if you just say I'm talking about parenting because um, it's not, I'm not a mommy blogger. I don't, you know, that's, my focus is more on um, Christian feminism and the way that has informed 
uh, Christian feminism or evangelicalism and that the way that is formed our understanding of parenting. Um, so I, I like looking at, at Christian popular culture, at our wider popular culture and the different messages that culture gives us about who or what we're supposed to be. I really appreciate the clarification about not being a mommy blogger. Yeah, yeah. because even even in, even though I haven't read the other works, uh, looking at the book Worthy, you you jump into some you jump into those very same topics that you just described, and uh, even dealing with the challenging, uh, almost theological understanding of adoption, and yes. and and going through that experience, it's it's um, it raises issues of class of of God's providence, you know, why would God, uh, you know, allow you, I think in one part of your book, you mentioned, uh, um, you know, why, uh, I, I couldn't imagine, here's the quote, I couldn't imagine a God who would make a woman in a developing country suffer just so a woman of power and privilege could swoop in and raise her child. I mean, that's not mommy blogger stuff. That's deep. That's yeah. Deep. And I, I'll say there's nothing wrong with being a mommy blogger. <laughs> um, I have friends who do that. It's just not, where my heart is and um, my husband and I did choose to adopt rather than have biological children and we did so naively not really thinking of all the cultural and race and ethnic and uh, white privilege dynamics that come with adoption um, so yeah in the book I talk about that tension um, in the paradox of loving my children intensely and can't not imagining a life without them, but recognizing that my own privilege, my own race, um, my own Western lifestyle makes it possible for me to raise children that should be raised by their birth families. So that, that, that seems to be a strong, uh, I would say a, a, a I, there's a thread in, in Worthy where you pick up on some of those issues and some of those values. How did you get to the, I would say, the topic, the focus, even the title of the book, Worthy? How did, how did those pieces come together for you? Um, well, the title was uh, given to me by the wonderful people at Herald Press. <laughs> so I, I love the title and um, the work that they did on that. The process for getting this book published started in 2016 when I wrote a piece for Christianity Today um, on the heels of the bathroom transgender ban discussions that were happening um, across the United States. And so for the article in Christianity Today, I talked about my own experience growing up looking very much like a boy, um, not being what culturally we would define as uh, feminine and consistently getting out kicked out of women's bathrooms from the time I was about 12 or 13 up through college and the effect that had on me um, and more broadly um, I wrote about the way we have created this understanding of what it means to be male and female that that is really culturally conscribed and if we got, we are going to police bathrooms we're going to cause a lot of pain, unintended pain for people who are transgender or not. Right. Um, and that article was published in June, 2016 and it went viral ish. Um, and Harold press contacted me pretty soon after that to see if I 
had a book idea that I wanted to explore further. So we use that that article as the basis for thinking about um, thinking about a, a bigger book idea. And part of my sense in the article was that when we say that somebody isn't feminine enough or masculine enough, we're really just saying that they're not worthy just as they are, that they have to change themselves to fit some cultural dynamic of what it means to be a man or a woman or, or any other number of things. And so that was kind of the foundation for the exploration of the book. And I could certainly, because that, the last 10 years I've been studying Christian popular culture and the messaging that gives to men and women, um, I certainly had a lot to draw on there and thinking about the different messages that, have, that I've received about who I am and how those messages have told me that I'm not good enough just as I am, that I have to change myself to some kind of paradigm prescribed for me by the church, by church tradition, by, um, by our cultural messages. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was able to build the argument from that. It's interesting that, that Christianity Today had that article and it went viral and it, it just it launched something. Now, I would, I would assume Christianity Today has a uh, more traditional audience. Absolutely. And I had to actually edit some things um, to make it fit for that audience. <laughs> because, um, you know, my sense is that people who identify as transgender are also created in the image of God and are fine just as they are. And Christianity Today didn't want me to take my argument that far. But it, when it went viral, I'm sure there was more uh, generated, more comments, more conversation, a variety of different directions also that, that gave Harold Press the idea, there's something here to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And I think I might have been on Harold Press's uh, radar because I've been reviewing their books for Mennonite World Review for about 15 years. Right. So, yeah. They knew who I, who I was and I think made connections with, with that Christianity Today article and some other things I've written. So uh, just a little bit uh, mentioned, you've mentioned Harold Press, uh, mentioned uh, introducing you that you're a professor at George Fox University. You step inside two different or two similar kind of theological worlds. One is uh, kind of evangelical Quakerism with George Fox University, maybe not evangelical Quakerism, but also not the uh, tradition of the silent Quaker. Right. And then you're also in the Mennonite Church USA connections and, and uh, kind of raised with that kind of pedigree or background. Yeah. How was how it stem, standing in those two different uh, theological traditions? Or There's a lot of similarities as well, but dealing with this topic of, of worthiness, of, of being enough. Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in the Mennonite Church, um, General Conference Mennonite Church, my dad's a Mennonite pastor, so I was pretty uh, seeped in Mennonite culture. Um, and I actually came to George Fox as a student first in the late 80s. And that's the first real introduction I had to evangelicalism. And it was a huge, huge cultural shock for me to um, go from my Mennonite upbringing to evangelical culture. Um, and I talk in my book a little bit about what that that um, cultural dissonance was like. Um, so when I came back to teach, I was kind of familiar with evangelical culture from, from, from being a student at George Fox, but um, 
was not aware as a student of all the dynamics that go into evangelical culture and have been made more aware um, in the last 20 years as a, as a teacher here. Um, I still very much identify as a Mennonite. I, um, I think I have a Mennonite ethos. Um, and that, is, that has made it more difficult on occasions for me to, to find my way here in an evangelical culture. Um, and I have called out, just because of my own perspective, I've called out through my writing what I see as problematic about evangelical culture. And um, that, that has been a point of tension between me and, and other faculty colleagues and sometimes the administration. Well, that's, that's a tough thing to handle professionally. Uh, I, but I, even, even in these two traditions, I mean, it, the, an evangelical tradition, uh, by virtue of trying to be evangelical, can be very attuned to culture and sometimes become just the offspring of contemporary culture or pop culture. Yes. Whereas Mennonites ideally really think of themselves as non-conforming and trying to be a contrast culture. Yes. In some ways, I can see those two uh, worlds really creating quite a wrestling match. Yet at the same time, there's plenty of Quakers I know who are very non-conforming, and there's lots of Mennonites I know who are just slaves of culture like everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and... Um, I would say that George Fox, even in the time I've been here, has identified less and less as a Quaker institution and more as um, non-denominational evangelical, um, which has been an interesting dynamic too. I, I think I've been lucky that I teach in a department that has a number of Quakers in it or progressive Christians. Uh, I think I would have a much harder time if I was like, in another department on campus where people are far more conservative and evangelical. You teach in, a, in, in English, and so you get to read people's essays, you get to read students' uh, thoughts and reflections and their opinions. I mean, you, you may see something more going on in kind of the undercurrent of the student population than somebody who might be teaching in some more of a more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, exclusively rational, you know, mathematics course or engineering or science-based. I mean, you, you're getting self-expression in ways that others don't. Do you feel like you see something there among students that others might not? Oh, for sure. And that's one of the reasons I love teaching writing classes um, is because I get to hear students' stories and um, the challenges of their upbringing or the pain that they're experiencing here in college. And I, I, see that as a gift, that I get that opportunity to, to understand students in a different level than other colleagues. Um, I teach a class called Creative Nonfiction and we do a lot of personal essay and reflection in that class. And every semester I am blown away by my students' stories. And one of the things um, in connection with Worthy is that my main goal in that class is to help students understand that their stories show the unique imprint of their creator in their lives. And um, the stories can be an expression of that unique, unique way they're image bearers of God. Um, so I, I just think it's a gift that I get to, to experience that with students in ways that my colleagues do not. 
But I also, I also see then, the, um, I think more than other colleagues, the ways in which students are brushing up against their own, um, their own past, their own church tradition, their only, own family messaging. Um, I see that the, the way that as they move through college, those tensions um, intensify so that especially with my female students, they come to college having heard that their primary role will be as a wife and a mother and that, you know, God is calling them and has designed them specifically to be in the home um, and be submissive to men. And they come to college and they feel an intense sense of calling. They begin to feel their own agency. And so often that expression of conflict and tension emerges in their writing and gives me a chance to talk to them about what I see as their calling. And um, that sometimes that messaging uh, from their churches and their family traditions is problematic. And that's a gift too, that I get to help them understand their calling as different than what they've been told their entire lives. You, you get to see something among young people that, that others don't get to see. Yeah. What, how, how does, how, how would that, how could that translate to older folks out of college, you know, in the, in the midst of life? I mean, do you, can, have you, have you, uh, I guess, done retreats or helped uh, people who were not in college to have those avenues for self-reflection and expression to deal with the boundaries that they've come up against and, or do you see yeah, ways that we could, we could, could, could do something like that? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I am doing a retreat, the Mennonite women's Northwest Mennonite women's retreat in April and at Drift Creek. And I'm going to take them through some of that process of thinking about the messages they re received. Um, actually did on, on campus last semester, I did a retreat for staff at George Fox. Uh, and that was a good experience of helping them see uh, on our own campus the messaging they receive about their worthiness or lack thereof um, in uh, as a, having to do with gender and socioeconomic status, um, their status as support staff here at George Fox. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've developed a practice of helping people recognize the messaging, where that messaging comes from, and how the Bible specifically offers a far more redeeming, um, a, a more redeeming message about their own worthiness. So, so, you know, mentioning the message of the Bible, your background also academically is, is in studying rhetoric, I believe? Yeah. And so word, word choice, or not just word choice, but, but those, those messages that are contained in our statements are really valuable. But I think in, in one point of um, reading Worthy, I remember at least a couple of points, I believe, where some of the rhetoric of the church or the language of the church butts up against, um, you know, I think there's one thing where you talk about evangelical language, about blessing God, and you're not really getting that. How do you look at that biblical? Or, or I want to even use the word biblical because that, yeah, there, you have a great criticism about that term as well. Uh, how do you access scripture and the wealth of, of uh, wisdom to, uh, to challenge these messages or to challenge some of these assumptions that are out there? How do you, how do you 
is there a rhetoric in scripture that, that fights against the rhetoric or wrestles with the rhetoric of, of culture? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not really a biblical scholar. Um, that's, that's probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I just come back to the messages of Jesus and the example of Jesus in the gospels, which should be where our attention is focused in the, the whole arc of the Gospels is towards love and inclusion. Um, and Jesus says the first commandment is to um, love your neighbor as yourself. Or is that the second commandment? You know that verse. <laughs> um, love then, God, love people, right? Right. Yeah. That's, that's the center of Jesus' message. That's what Jesus did during his time on earth. And... Um, I think if we see the entire arc of the Bible itself focused towards that, towards the ministry of Jesus, we see that that love for others is at the center of that message. Um, and when I talk specifically, for example, about the evangelical use of blessing and how that has been um, perverted to mean um, a, a way that we humble brag about our lives, um, we do see the language of blessing in the Gospels, but if you look closely at what Jesus is saying, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about those who are blessed, they're not those who are wealthy or have power and privilege. The ones who are blessed are the ones who are at the margins of Jesus' society. Um, and, and so I understand when, when Jesus is talking about those who are blessed, he's talking about those who are loved or who deserve our love, not those with power and privilege, um, how we use blessing now, but those who are at the margins and who, who um, need our full expression of love and inclusion. That, that leads into, at least for me, uh, one of the chapters in the book that I found most, uh, oh, I don't want to say meaningful, they're all meaningful in different ways, but it hit me at the right time. And it was the, the, the big but. Yeah. Uh, right. It, you know, it, to read to read the title is one thing, but to say it out loud sounds even funnier, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in that chapter, I mean, you you you, you speak of uh, kind of our ability to to talk ourselves into believing that yeah, hey, we're kind of inclusive, except for this person, except for that person, or except for that thing, and we create these these filters or even barriers to just simply saying God welcomes everyone, right. And it, I, I know in, in um, the, well, both, both church traditions that you, you uh, stand in, uh, the, the, uh, the Quakers and uh, the Mennonites, we're, 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 we're dealing with those questions largely around sexual identity, issues of gender, but they're much broader than, than that as well. Um, if you were to prognosticate, you know, what's the future look like for these ideas of inclusion? Do, do walls continue to break down? Or are we as just human beings stuck in this frustrating cycle of always finding one more group to exclude as soon as we include another? Uh, what's, yeah. what's going on there? Well, um, I can just go on what I see in the young people that I'm teaching now in my classes. They don't see those walls or barriers in the same way we we do. And um, I think at least in my, in the Newburgh Friends Church, when that split 
two years ago, it was very much along generational lines. Um, and I would imagine the same is true in the Mennonite church. I think the same is probably true in the United Methodist church and the, and the discussions they've recently had, where it's very much split along generational lines. And I think it's going to have to change. I think um, the older folks are going to, are, you know, they're going to fall away and the new generation sees the LGBT issue completely differently. I think than their forefathers and foremothers. That would be my guess. So it's almost like a kind of a, a war of attrition that the other side will just eventually fade away or. Right. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think that that's going to have to happen. Um, things are going to have to change. I think for example, of my church split, uh, the Newburgh Friends Church, the um, older generations kept the church building, but they don't, you know, their Sunday school classrooms are empty. Right. The people who left the church have formed a new congregation that's meeting in a Lutheran church, and they have plenty of resources of time and energy and money. They just don't have a church building. But I think that congregation is probably going to be sustained a lot longer than the congregation, another congregation that kept the building, but doesn't have the young people to fill the classrooms or the seats. The, um, I think it's interesting that the generational divide and, uh, and have you had conversations uh, or participants in retreats almost so you can kind of maybe hear some of the deeper questions of those who reflect the older uh, generation that might be, and I don't want to generalize, overgeneralize, but those who might be more or less inclusive. Uh, you know, what's kind of what's going on in their uh, hearts as they reflect? Yeah, I don't have people ask me about that, actually. And I don't know why that is. I've spoken at several Mennonite congregations where I know that my sense of that, what I say about that church split or the church conflict, um, I'm pretty explicit there in what I think but people don't come engage with me after the service on that. They'll talk to me about other things. So I don't know if, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's been very interesting in the, the congregation right now that I'm consulting for. Uh, we're, we actually are going through a process and it's been very interesting to actually see some of the generational uh, camps begin to blur and become less uh, intent on holding on to their position. Yeah. But it takes time. Uh, yeah. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. And I, I, that's a generality. You know, it's not all the older generation. A number of older people left the church, the Newburgh Friends Church, and went to the new church because they longed to be inclusive. Right. Um, my parents go to a United Methodist Church here in Newburgh that's welcoming and affirming. So maybe it's not purely along generational lines. Yeah, I think it's more, perhaps more along uh, traditional versus progressive and assuming that the traditional lines are filled with uh, a generation and maybe majority, but not exclusively. Right. Uh, and, and same with progressives, because uh, some of the most progressive people I know are in their 80s. Yes. And, and they're, they're a blast. <laughs> yeah. I think some of those people go to Salem Mennonite too yeah there's some of them here yeah yeah and there's some down the down the road at uh, albany mennonite in right. fact 
you mentioned one person in your book uh, who I who I know as well, uh, Lois. Oh yes. You know, just a, a fiery progressive presence. Um, right. And uh, so, so uh, one of the things we do with our interviews is. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, before I get to the conclusion, uh, we have a concluding process. Before I get to that, I want to ask you one more thing about the book. Uh, or, or, about, about the book and the word or the title that uh, Harold Press chose for you, that, that message of worthy. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you want uh, somebody who, uh, gosh, maybe they're looking for a book to read. Maybe they're, they're struggling with some questions. Uh, how could your book be a meaningful helpful thing for somebody. So here right now, I want you to advertise your book. Here, read my book. This will help you, you know, be happy. It'll help you become successful and, and, and drive a new Lexus or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You'll win all your, your, your uh, trivia matches. It'll give you all the information. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what I hope from my book, um, you know, I actually wrote it with my students in mind, but I don't think it's, it's not you know, people of all ages or both men and women can, can benefit from my message. But I did write with my students in mind because I want them to walk out into the world knowing that they are fearfully, wonderfully, uniquely made just as they are, that they don't need to change the fundamental part of who they are to be accepted and loved by God and by their community. Um, and honestly, that's a message I wish I would have give, been given when I was in college, when I was graduating and going out into the world, because I felt like I wasn't worthy, just as I was, that I had to change myself, that because things weren't happening for me the way my culture said it was, that there was something deficient about me. So I think had I received that alternative message, I might have walked out into the world with a little bit more hope and satisfaction and feeling loved rather than marginalized. So I think that's the message that I would like people to receive. I think being able to deconstruct the cultural messages that we receive about our worthiness or lack thereof, um, just being able to call those out as BS, um, I think could be helpful for people because I think those messages are everywhere. We are bombarded by them every single day and we don't recognize it. And having somebody else point that out might be worthwhile. Yeah, one of the things about thinking about a specific audience as you were writing the book, I think makes it so real and authentic that it then speaks to an audience much broader than that. Yeah, well, thank you. It wasn't written to an abstract audience. It was written to you know, real people. And right. so as, a, as an old white guy, I love it. You know, it was a great book. It was meaningful personally, uh, but also it looks like something that would be so meaningful for others as well. So it really, really is a great book. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So here's a set of questions we ask uh, when we do interviews. And so every, every um, interviewee gets asked this same set. And, uh, and it maybe uh, shows where the true passion of our podcast uh, actually resides, you know, aside from uh, profound theological ideas. <laughs> so, um, and they're, they're penetrating, they're self-reflective, and hopefully not too uh, intimidating. Okay. I'm a little bit worried, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm nervous now, yeah. So what are you reading these days? What, what's, what's on your reading list? Um, boy, I'm reading several things. I'm getting ready to review Karen Gonzalez's 
The God Who Sees, for written by Harold Press or published by Harold Press. Uh, excellent book about immigration experience. I'm reading a young adult novel called The Miseducation of Cameron something or other. Um, really good. And then I'm teaching a world lit class right now. So I'm reading a Japanese novel from the mid 20th century called Snow Country. That's a, that's a good reading list. Yeah. <laughs> that's neat. I like that. Yeah. So one of the things in your bio, I think it's on your faculty page, you, it says you like running and watching TV. Yeah. So, um, we really didn't even talk about sports, which is a big deal for all of us. I'm glad you're a runner. That's a lifelong fitness thing that a lot of people can do. As a track coach, I'm big on that. Yeah. Uh, but watching, so what are you watching lately? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I should say. Uh, um, well, right now, I don't have a lot of time for watching TV. Um, I have shows that I watch while I grade papers because they're mindless. And that's the baking shows or house hunters. Um, I've been watching on Netflix something called Shit's Creek. Is oh, show? that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. Yeah. Um, I if I am needing an up uplifting short show, I will watch reruns of Parks and Rec or Arrested Development. Good choices. Yeah, I, I, I like Schitt's Creek. I, I, I stayed away from it because I thought, oh, it's just playing on the name. It's probably has nothing to, you know, no meaning. I love it. It is so funny. Yeah, and the character development, uh, I'm on season four right now, it's just been really great. Yeah. Like, seeing the characters change has been wonderful. And it, uh, I think there's a style of Canadian sitcom that, that is in the writing and the production there, because I've seen some other Canadian shows that have a similar uh, arc in their story development. I think that's, yeah. I think, uh, that's, a, that's a nice treasure there. Yes. <laughs> so what, are you, what are you listening to, either music or podcasts? What, what do you fill your ears with? Um, I listen to podcasts almost primarily. Um, I love investigative podcasts. I just finished one called Dear Franklin Jones, which is about um, a cult that I'd never heard of. Huh. Um, I sometimes listen to pol politics podcasts, but then I get really angry. Um, yeah, so mostly podcasts. Okay. I, I realized this morning, um, since both my kids are now driving and they're not in the car with me a lot of the time, I'm like losing... For a while there, I knew popular music really well, but now I don't know what's what's in right now as far as popular music goes. Wow, so that sounds like a, a to-do list item. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you go running. Do you put in the earbuds and then uh, just listen to politics or podcasts? No, I actually have a running friend. Uh, we run okay. run four days a week with one person and one day a week with somebody else. So it's mostly chatting. Okay, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I run individually, and so it's usually I listen to music at that time. I've tried, li I've tried listening to news or podcasts or those, kind, and it just gets me thinking too much, and I don't run very well. Yeah, exactly. Well, for a while I was listening, uh, running marathons, I would listen to books, audiobooks, but that wasn't actually a good plan because I wasn't thinking about the race as much as just listening to the book. Uh, you, you, you've got to be aware of what you're doing when you're racing. Yes. <laughs> um, so another question is, uh, what are you eating or drinking? 
you have like a favorite go-to uh, food that you like to cook or you recipes you like to do, or is there a drink that you just, you got to have it every day. It's your thing. Um, well, this is also embarrassing, but I'm kind of addicted to diet Coke. So I drink a lot of that. Um, and I think I got my mom's Mennonite baking gene because I love baking stuff. And I you make Zwiebach? I did make Zwiebach this past weekend, actually. Love it. Yeah. Really good. Uh, I love I love baking I love I love baking breads and uh, Zwiebach when we lived in Kansas that was one of the things that love to make yeah and Veronica do you make Veronica I haven't uh, it seems too daunting oh it's not that bad <laughs> but I love it that's that's the kind of Mennonite cooking I like not that Swiss stuff that I had when I was in Pennsylvania I love right. that was okay yeah. but yeah yeah. And, uh, so the, the last question we always, we always ask uh, those we interview is, if we were to show up at your house, not that we will, or at your office, that's an easier place to find. I'm guessing, you, you, do you live in the Newburgh area? I live in Dundee. Okay, so if we were to come to you and say, you're going to take us out to eat, where, where would be the place that you would say, oh, this is the place you got to go? Oh, uh, Dundee and Newburgh have like they're becoming the big wine industry. So we have really good restaurants here now. Um, but with, when I'm with my family, we like going to Golden Leaf Thai in Newburgh. Um, there's a new food cart pod in Newburgh that I love going to. Um, they're even open during the winter. Um, I really like that. Dundee has a great little restaurant called Red Hills Market. And they do lots of Dundee-specific food, and I really like eating there, too. So aim for Dundee. That sounds like a good place to go. Right. Yes. Great wine tasting. Uh, if you're into that, great food. Beautiful scenery. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you for taking time to, to be with us and uh, tell us about Worthy and tell us about uh, your life and tell us about uh, life in Dundee. That's a great, great <laughs> To learn those uh, details yeah well thank you very much hopefully you enjoyed the interview with melanie springer mock and even though as i said it was about a little over a year ago the ideas the information uh, that perspective is still important and needs to stay with us uh, during these days if you want to keep up with melanie springer mock you can find her on facebook as melanie springer mock you can find her on twitter at springer mock she also has a number of articles in a, a publication called Christian Feminism Today. The website for that is eewc.com. And if you want to find out what she's doing as a professor, you can look her up on the faculty pages at georgefox.edu. One of the things we've tried to do in the past is refrain from editing. And at this time of year, my office is on the back porch, so frequently you might be able to hear finches, sparrows, doves, as well as cars and lawnmowers. All the talking, interviews, and conversations are rough cut, mainly because we never wanted to take the time to get overly precise and picky. Rather, we have great ideas, and we just simply want to present them. Start following, commenting, and sending us ideas on the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast Facebook page. Also, you can search for the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast by going to themissionplace.org. Go to the Media tab, and you can find all of the episodes of the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast.
As we're closing out, I want to give a big shout out to At the Speed of Darkness for the music intro and outro. You can follow At the Speed of Darkness and support his music at Bandcamp. Bandcamp.